1208, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So what's going on with this Martellus Bennett thing? He, of course, was the Packers' big free agent signing, the guy, and a lot of us thought he was going to be the missing piece. Even when Aaron Rodgers was healthy, he was a human drop factory. You know, you would just hope Martellus Bennett wasn't walking around a burning building with somebody throwing out a child because, oops, butterfingers, he would have dropped it. Um, So he was not playing very well at all. And then... It appears, and this is what people are saying behind the scenes, he quit on the team. After, I mean, he apparently came to Green Bay with the idea that they were going to have a chance to win a Super Bowl. As soon as Aaron Rodgers got hurt, then he just decided that he wasn't necessarily going to play. Now, here's the problem the Packers have. It's not getting rid of him because I think they decided that he was a cancer. The problem is that... The, the problem is that, that they've paid him. Now, they signed him to like a $24 million contract or something, but, but he got $8 million up front. He got a bunch of money up front, and he's got his contract for the balance of the year. Uh, the Packers are talking about how they, they might uh, – maybe he misled them and you know did not disclose an injury. But problem with that is uh, you know he went through the practices. He played seven games. That seems to me to be tough. It's just – appears that they hired they they just went out and got a low character guy that's what it seems to be who decided that he was going to bail on his teammates as soon as things got tough and um now he is gone does make you rethink that that whole thing where they let jared cook go the tight end for last year they decided to let him go he kind of overplayed his hand in negotiations they went with bennett they thought they had made a deal and um as so many things happening in this packer season it just it what seemed like it was going to be just this this star-studded season hasn't really worked out, but uh, Martellus Bennett gone. I think that story is going to be around for quite a while. We start off today's show like we start off every show with three big things. I have been waiting all day to discuss story number one with you. When I first started here, I used to do a lot of public speaking. I'd go out to pretty much every service organization that would have me, and I'd speak to these various groups. They're always looking for you know people to attend. I've cut back on that dramatically over the years. But I swear, I think I probably spoke to every Kiwanis Club and Rotary Club and Lions Club that would have me. Um, and, and I had a particular fondness for the Lions Clubs. Um, Lions Clubs, again, another service organization like the Kiwanis, like the Rotary, they, um, they, they deal with vision, you know, and they collect glasses, and that, that's, that's, their, that's their thing. Um, they also support area schools and by giving away scholarships. I, I, I remember distinctly on a couple different occasions, I got invited down to the Lions Club in McGuanago. And what they do is they have a program where they give scholarships, uh, cash awards, really, to high school sophomores. A lot of the awards are to seniors. They give them to high school sophomores. And then they have this this dinner, and it's held at the local Lions Club. And I can remember going down there, and Ed Grew, who's producing the show today, I, I remember I got a couple topics out of that because these are – like 15, and so there's there's sophomores, so you're talking about 15 and 16-year-olds, and it, it just, I remember giving these speeches, and it always struck me the difference between 15 and 16-year-old boys and 15 and 16-year-old girls. The boys all come in with, like, their shirts out and, you know, the jeans on, looking like they're 12. 
the girls dressed to the nines, looking like they're twenty-one. I mean, it's just it's just that kind of difference. You go, wow, you have full makeup, and and it just it's just the difference between boys and, and girls. And you know, they're all fifteen and sixteen-year-olds, but the boys are, eh, what's the big deal? Girls all just dress to the nines. I know we talked about that on a couple of occasions, but I mean, I'm a big fan of the Lions clubs, and these are great. All right, which brings me to this story: um, the Lions clubs um, in in Wisconsin Dells. It's the Mason Lake chapter. And for years, what they have done is they have made a scholarship. They have a $500 scholarship that they give to uh, a student at the in the Wisconsin Dells uh, school district. It goes to high school kids, right? So it's a $500 scholarship, and it is not unlike, I mean, maybe you've won scholarships from circus organizations. Maybe your kids have. You know, it's not an unusual type of thing. Well, that scholarship is not going to be given this year thanks to a decision made by the school district. Um, here's, here's the deal. The scholarship requires candidates so any any high school kid that's going to apply for this $500 scholarship, and I hope you're sitting down, I hope, hope you're ready for this, the scholarship, which has been around forever, the scholarship requires the person who wins it to be a United States citizen. That That's one of the requirements. There, there's various other requirements as well, but you have to be a U.S. citizen. The superintendent of schools, a guy named Terry Slack <clears throat> from the Wisconsin Dells said, no, we're, we're not going to publish this $500 scholarship in our booklet listing awards available to students. We're not, so when we, when we distribute this to kids at the beginning of the year, these are scholarships you can apply for. We're not going to include the Lions Club one because it requires you to be a citizen. And the Wisconsin Dells school superintendent says he feels that um, the district should not be allowed to publish information about this scholarship because, again, it would discriminate against people who are not citizens. He says it doesn't mean they can't give our kids the money, but we were not comfortable putting it in our local scholarship booklet. Um, we don't exclude scholarship opportunities. At that point in time, the, the, the Lions Club said, well, if we're not good enough to publish to you know, publish this in the list, if you don't want us, um, okay, then we're just not going to give the uh, award. The club added the citizenship requirement to the scholarship application materials five years ago, though the scholarship has been awarded for more than 20 years. Lions Club says this has never been an issue in the past. And, and by the way, all sorts of other organizations limit which students can apply for their awards. Uh, one guy at the Lions Club says, hey, there's some scholarship that are only available to customers of the electric co-op that's sponsoring the scholarship. There's some scholarships that are available only to students who are going into nursing. Um, we, at the Lions Club, we want to boost pride in U.S. citizenship. And that's why, yeah, we, we say you have to be a U.S. citizen to apply for this. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think the position by the Wisconsin Dells School District, as embodied by the superintendent, is absolutely ridiculous. If you can base a scholarship saying, hey, 
you have to be a customer of this particular service. Or this is a scholarship that is only going to go to people who have participated in track and field or basketball. Or this is a scholarship that can only go to people who are going to be going into nursing or a career in accounting or whatever. I think it is ridiculous in America in 2017 for the Wisconsin Dell superintendent to say, we are not going to publish, advertise, and stand behind a scholarship that requires, heaven forbid, the recipient to be a U.S. citizen. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it unreasonable for the Lions Club to choose to make citizenship one of the requirements for its award. 414-799-1620. My answer is no. The Wisconsin Dells school superintendent should be ashamed of himself for taking this position. We discuss next. It's 1217. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1220. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Think about this. Let's say that the, the Jewish community... Um, a Jewish community group in Wisconsin Dells wants to award a $1,000 scholarship to some graduating senior at the Wisconsin Dells High School. But the requirement is you have to be Jewish. I mean, w- would we say that you can't do that? I mean, that's ridiculous. These organizations, I think, have the right to make these determinations. And the fact that you've got the school superintendent who's wringing his hand saying, well, I'm worried it's going to be discriminating against non-citizens. They have the right to do that. This isn't a protected class, for goodness sakes. Let's uh, see. What about scholarships? These are texts. What about scholarships that require being a Boy Scout or being Polish or being from a single mother? That discriminates just the same as this. This is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Um, Yes. Yes, yes, yes. As a white male, I am ineligible for countless scholarships. Nobody says anything about that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Mike and Fond du Lac writes, Jeff, to borrow one of your phrases, this decision by the school superintendent makes my head explode. Shame on him for denying the opportunity to students. I guess in his mind, legal U.S. citizens are now second-class citizens. I just don't get it. I don't get it either. This idea that well, all right, some people who might be non-citizens, that they might be upset because they feel they're being discriminated against because they can't, you know, they they can't participate and go after this particular scholarship. Yeah, what? Right. What what about the scholarships that these service organizations give out to again the track athletes? How how, how does that not discriminate against everybody else who doesn't run track? 414-799-1620. Shame on the superintendent in the Wisconsin Dells. Again, this is this is what happens when you have this sort of pinheaded adherence to political correctness. Oh, I'm afraid this is going to violate federal discrimination laws. Bull. Bull. Let's talk to Mark in Watertown. Mark, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. This strikes me as being incredibly stupid. I, there's just no other way to look at it. Yeah, I'll tell you, when I went to high school, I did not qualify for scholarship because my grade point average wasn't high enough. Mm-hmm. What about that? Yeah, what about the what about the school? Right, you you put it. One of the conditions is we're giving away five hundred dollars to somebody who wants to go on to study electrical engineering, but they have to have at least a three point GPA. Is that discriminating against all the other potential students? Well, well, yes, it is, but. But it's there. It, it's not illegal to do that, is it? Yeah. No, I don't feel so. Yeah. I think that uh, Wisconsin Dells needs to replace their superintendent. 
Well, I, I absolutely – thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And, the, I mean, I, I, I wonder – I'd like to see what kind of crackerjack box, if some lawyer is telling him, well, this is going to violate, you know, federal anti-discrimination laws to publish this in their brochure. Because that's what happened. They, they, they say, well, Lions Club, if you want to give it away, that's fine. But we can't publish this, you know. And what, what kind of crazy double talk is that? Again, I, the phrase I use all the time is a problem looking for a solution. In this particular case – the superintendent has created the problem. Let's talk to uh, Jed in Wauwatosa here in 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, I'm uh, a member and a the press, current president of a local Lions Club. Yes, sir. And we have uh, awarded scholarships uh, in the last uh, several years. Yes. Uh, Lions, Club, Lions Clubs as a whole locally have some autonomy. Yep. However... Uh, Lions International, which is the international foundation, which uh, which governs Lions clubs worldwide, of course, does not require uh, require that uh, any scholarship recipients be the citizens of a particular country. Right. In my case, in my case, in the case of our club, it's never come up. However, uh, as the uh, previous caller pointed out. Uh, awarding scholarships for uh, for a particular grade point average, that is a criteria that we have used. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's discriminatory at all. No, I- exactly. It's, it's a way of, uh, again, narrowing down. You've got a limited amount of money. You're trying to find a, a worthy student. Now, in this case, like you say, you're right. My understanding is there's no uniform, universal requirement of citizenship, but this is what this local group does. They added this to the criteria about five years ago, and they say, hey, we, we want to, you know, we want to boost pride in U.S. citizenship. That's why we're doing it. This, that doesn't strike me as being an unreasonable thing. Well, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable either because it is a club that is located in the United States, and I yeah. think it would be, be important for a civic club to promote Americanism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Thanks for the call. Right. I mean, that's exactly it. It is a, it is a civic organization. Again, I, I would be curious to know if – and I'll just go back to my example earlier. Let's say you had one of the local synagogues or a Jewish organization in Wisconsin Dells that decided we've got $500 – a college scholarship, we want to give it to a worthy Jewish student. All right, would that be against the law because you're discriminating against Catholics or you're discriminating against Protestants or you're discriminating against Muslims? And and my point would be, no, they, they have the right to do that, to pick and choose. And, yes, it's going to eliminate it, just like if you're giving a scholarship to a female track athlete. Sorry, guys, you're going to be excluded. Let's talk to, is it Zai in Fond du Lac? Hi, Zai. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, so on the uh, on the topic here at, at hand, I, I do find ridiculous, too, that they're refusing to at least make that out there for the for these students. Right. It's really something that they should benefit. I mean, U.S. citizenship, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, I just see that as another criteria to be eligible for that that scholarship, just like uh, if you're going to go into nursing, you got to be in nursing yeah. or business, you got to be in business. So. Yeah. I don't see it as discriminatory at all. I mean, I'm an Asian-American, and yeah. I, I, you know, it's like, if I'm not eligible, I'm not eligible. So what? Move on. 
Right, right. You're, yeah, so you're going right, to be, there's going to, there's perhaps there are going to be other awards or scholarship that you might be eligible for that somebody else isn't. I, you know, I, and, and so that, that's just kind of what you apply for. Why would we, why would we say to the Lions Club, no, take your $500 and do you know what with it? That, it makes no sense to me. Exactly. And, and, uh, being a, a uh, part of the minority Asian American here as going through school and college, yeah, I mean, there were things that only Asian Americans yeah. had to be Asian or a certain race. And I was like, yeah, awesome, yeah. you know? Yeah, I no. I for that. Right, exactly. Yeah. I th- thanks for the call. I mean, that, that's it. I have a, a text here. When my daughter graduated from Waukesha North High School, they handed out scholarships from some group that were only for Mexicans. All right, well, is that is that discriminatory? I, I think. No, at, at all. And again, this is now one of the things the superintendent is going is, well, after we told the Lions Club, no, we had some other donor that was willing to come up with another $500. But that's not the point. The point is you have this pinheaded political correctness, which is decided, oh, my gosh, you can't you can't make U.S. citizenship a criteria for a service organization to give a scholarship in a high school or a school district in the United States of America. And that is, I guess, the position taken by the guy who is paid by the taxpayers, the Wisconsin Dells School District Superintendent, Terry Slack. I think the bigger problem here isn't with the Lions Club. It's with who Wisconsin Dells has chosen and hired to be their school district superintendent. His name is Terry Slack. 1228, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Big story number two is coming up. Would the situation that happened in Texas over the weekend have been better or worse? Somebody in that church you experienced Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, our featured supper club is the Golden Mast Inn on Okachi Lake. Family run, the Golden Mast has been one of the area's top restaurants for over 40 years. It offers delicious traditional German and European fare in a truly unique setting. Great views. Tomorrow, that is tomorrow. At 1 o'clock, so 24 hours and 22 minutes or so from now, you can get a $50 certificate for only 25 bucks. It is like stealing. These go quickly. We only have 50 available. Get yours tomorrow, starting at 1 o'clock by heading to WTMJ Supper Club. Um, yeah, I tell you, it's a lot, a lot of reaction, of course, to that story we were just talking about. The decision by the Wisconsin Dell School Superintendent to say, well, we're not going to publicize Alliance Club scholarship. We're not. We're not even going to look at it. We're not going to publish it in our brochure because it limits the recipients to, well, I don't know, U.S. citizens. Oh, the horrors of this! I think maybe Wisconsin Dell should be looking at who they have hired to be their school superintendent. All right, story number two, and this is playing out in, in various media outlets. What got me started on this is there was a interesting op-ed piece in USA Today that caught my attention about this. All right. Horrible situation last Sunday in Texas. Everybody knows the story by now. You have this 20-something-year-old, disaffected, mentally ill loser who had, I mean, you want to talk about all the different warning signs. I mean, here's a guy tossed out of the Air Force, dishonorably discharged for beating his wife. The nature of the discharge, if the Air Force had done his job, he would not be able to legally have obtained the firearms that he used in the shooting. Now, that's not to say he wouldn't have been able to get a gun, but he wouldn't have been able to legally have that. All these different signs, everybody's talking about how this was this odd guy, and he was prone to violence, and he'd done all these terrible things. And then 
He wakes up apparently Sunday morning and decides he's going to go to his mother in the church his mother in law attends, even though his mother in law is not there, and shoot it up. And we all know the story twenty six people dead, including small children, uh, twenty people injured, many, many critically injured. Then what happens is the coward decides to flee after that. This is of course Texas, and Texas being Texas, there's people who carry firearms. And one or two citizens follow him, and ultimately what ends up happening is um, one of the citizens who ends up chasing this guy shoots at him, hits him, and, and ultimately ends up uh, killing him. Um, he's hit in an area where he doesn't have the body armor, and he ends up uh, ultimately bleeding out. Who knows what else this guy would have done were it not for the fact that you had an armed citizen who followed him. Now, the man who followed him was not in the church at the time of the shooting. Uh, instead, it was somebody who was outside the church who saw this and then ended up getting involved. Well, now, see this for the people who don't like concealed carry or don't like the idea of people carrying guns, that this poses a dilemma. Because on the one hand, if it were not for this citizen following this mad dog killer and shooting him, um, he might have killed other people. You know, who knows what he would have done next. So the man that followed him, that got involved in the gun battle, that shot him, is unquestionably a hero. But, of course, that makes some people uncomfortable because it requires recognizing that occasionally armed citizens with firearms can, in fact, do good and can, in fact, be a positive influence and can, in fact, you know, reduce the carnage. So the people who don't like the guns are now acknowledging, well, okay, the, the man who followed him and, and ended up shooting him did a good thing. But keep in mind, he was outside the church. So the question becomes, what if somebody inside the church had been carrying a firearm? and had been able to essentially engage the shooter, would it have made matters better or worse? Now, the piece I was looking at in USA Today argues, well, we'll give, we'll give the, the bystander, the man who followed him and shot the killer, we'll give him some props. But that's not to say that it was a good thing, it would have been a good thing for anybody to have had a gun inside that church. And the argument would be, well, because if you got into a gun battle with a guy who's, you know, clearly had the element of surprise on his hand and is intended in killing as many people as possible, you, you might have made matters even worse by engaging in a crossfire or something in that church. Right, our numbers are 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think that argument is absolutely ridiculous. Now, I am not advocating that people you know, carry guns into places of worship, necessarily. At the same time, I think it is almost impossible to argue that faced in a situ- with a situation like this, how somebody or multiple people with guns inside that church could have made the situation worse. I mean, this guy, the, the psycho killer, um, was free to do whatever he wanted. There wasn't anybody who was in a position to fight back when he decided to try to kill as many people as possible. I understand, I guess, in some situations 
where you know all of a sudden bullets start flying. If somebody else starts shooting back, that has the potential to make a bad situation worse. But in these tor- sort of situations where you have the psycho killer who is intent on killing as many people as he possibly can until he essentially runs out of ammunition, explain to me how somebody in that church armed firing back could have possibly made anything any worse maybe he would have hit the guy um maybe he would have caused the man to retreat and to stop but as it was there was nobody who could stop this guy because he had the firearm and he was shooting 414-799-1620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line uh, Gru is lining up the calls. We discuss in less than two and a half minutes. If you're on the line, please hold on. This, argu- this article I'm reading says, well, it, it's still, it's, that, that, that's not really an argument for concealed carry. They could have made it worse if there was somebody that had a gun in the church. Really? How could you have made it worse? 1243, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1247, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, a text line explodes. I have one. I don't know, Jeff. Could you promise no crossfire from the parishioner? In other words, so you have the psycho that walks in, starts walking up and down the aisle with a uh, semi-automatic rifle, shooting repeatedly at men, women, and children. Um, And my theory is, okay, if if somebody's got a a firearm with them and they start shooting back at them, can I promise, can I guarantee you that there wouldn't be somebody that got hurt by the the crossfire? No, I can't. I, I can't guarantee it. But what I could guarantee is that there was nobody in that church that was in a position to defend themselves. 26 people dead, 20 people injured, some critically, because there was nobody in a position to stop this guy. So, I mean, I think as, as risks go, it's it's worth it. It would have been worth it. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Mike in Muskego. Mike, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the afternoon. I love it. Thank you very much. I love it. <laughs> I've been a law enforcement officer for 10 years now, and I pretty much carry everywhere I can. Um, you know, not thinking at a bar or at a concert or something like that, because you can't. But this guy should be hailed as a hero. I mean, I think if this particular guy was in the church when this happened, he would have took action and countless more lives would have been saved. We teach a thing in uh, police work called the greater danger theory, okay? And the thought is that if somebody comes into a populated area and starts shooting and you don't do anything, there's going to be a more probability of death or great bodily harm with that person. Right. If you do engage the person, yeah, you may hit somebody else, but you're going to more chance that you're going to stop that person from killing other people. So anytime somebody could carry and you know, contact law enforcement and follow through with this situation, it's a great thing. He he stopped another potential shooting with law enforcement or another shooting involved with another populated yeah. area with this guy, and I think he did a great job. Yeah, now, I, I admit that this, Mike, is perhaps an extreme case. If you change the facts a little, and if this is a situation where maybe, you know, somebody's in that convenience store and they're trying to do the hold-up, and somebody then pulls a gun, you know, who's a concealed carry person and fires first or something. Maybe it's a little bit different dynamic. But in a situation like this with a mass shooting, that the only thing that was going to stop that man was when he ran out of ammunition, essentially. And, I, I mean, if you had somebody or a couple people who had firearms, they would have like you were talking about, maybe scared him off, maybe caused him to retreat, maybe forced him to redirect his fire or, or whatever, but it couldn't have been worse than it ended up being. It just couldn't have been. 
Absolutely. And the biggest thing I preach to people is training. Okay, you're not just going to carry a gun and expect to resolve a situation like this. I guarantee this guy had some type of training, uh, his thought process and everything like that. you got to be comfortable to pull your right. weapon in a situation like that. And most important, know when you should pull your right. weapon and have to use it. Right. No, no, thanks for calling. Again, that's why, you know, if you say to me, if I, I want to get the email saying, well, Jeff, are you arguing that in every situation, so somebody who has a gun should engage somebody else who's carrying a gun? No, I, I'm not. I, I, because I, I will concede that there might be situations where by doing that, you escalate it, you make things worse, you put other people at risk. But in a situation like this, where you have somebody who is intent on killing as many people as possible, if somebody had had a firearm, they would have perhaps been in a position to fire back, to scare him off, to force him to retreat. And, and yes, I, I understand that in the, the hail of gunfire, maybe somebody else could have gotten hurt. But, my God, you've got 26 people who were killed by this person who just walked up and down the aisle with nobody able to impede him, shooting randomly. Let's talk to Mike in Whitefish Bay. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. I agree with you 100% on this. This guy was a coward. You know, once he was engaged with somebody, he what did he do? He took off in his car and he tried to get away. He didn't want to die. Right. Uh, I understand the issue with the crossfire, but, you know, quite frankly, if I'm in that church, having crossfire with a, somebody shooting with this guy, changing gunfire, allows me an opportunity to, one, call the police, or two, find an exit or some way to get out of there, you know, try to steer myself away from wherever the shooting taking place. Uh, I, I just think somebody would be done with save so many more lives. This guy was yeah. walking up and down the aisles apparently executing people. And yeah. If he, if somebody had returned fire, he would be more concerned. He would look for cover. He, you right. know, he would have bought time for the, the police yes. to arrive. It would have just been so much better. It, it would. I mean, thanks again. I mean, I, again, I appreciate that the risk is that that person who is returning fire could miss and could strike, you know, somebody else, you know, behind the shooter or something like that. I, I understand that. But given the circumstances in a case like this, it seems to me that that risk is just what would be the legal phrase, de minimis. It, it's just so incredibly minor as to not be, be worth it. You would have, by engaging him, by engaging the shooter, you would have been able to, I, I think, prevent this and, and, again, make this better. And, you know, if you think about the, some of the other mass shooting situations that we've had, what about that, that the Colorado um, movie theater thing where the guy is, is watching the Batman, is dressed in the Joker outfit and just stands up and starts shooting in the movie theater? Oh, wait, if, if you had somebody in that movie theater that had a firearm that was able to return fire so that the thing that causes the man to leave isn't the fact that he's run out of ammunition, but rather the fact that the guy feels he's got to retreat, um, uh, that that I think inevitably makes people safer. Now, look, I understand in this case and in the Colorado case and in this case, you know, the, the bad guy, the shooter, was wearing body armor and had these different protections and things like that, and he's carrying an AR-15, so somebody with a handgun is, in fact, going to be outgunned. But I think a lot of these psychos are cowards. They are counting on the fact that they are that nobody is going to confront them. Nobody is going to try to stop them. And I just wonder what would have happened. But again, I, I don't want to play the what-if game too much, except I'm seeing all these pieces that are out there by people suggesting, oh, anybody who thinks that you know carrying a firearm in a situation like this could have made it better is foolish. No, you couldn't have made it. You just could not have made it worse. Let's talk to Cody and Racine. Cody, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Cody. 
Um, you know, I, I go to a church here in Racine. Uh, I have my concealed carry. I know there's a couple other members of the church that have theirs. I would hope that in a situation like this that someone would be able to, to you know, give us a chance uh, and defend us. I, I think that anyone with a concealed carry, I think it would have given at least, you know, a chance to the victims. Yeah, or, or right, a, a chance, you know, if if somebody is in a position to, in, as soon as the guy starts firing, if somebody is in a position to start returning fire or whatever, it, it may, you know, you might hit him, you might scare him off or, or whatever, but at the very least, you're going to stop him from just being able to walk up and down the aisles of the church, randomly shooting people at point-blank range. It I, that That's just... You know, you've got to be responsible with how you do it. But if you're in one of these situations, would you rather just be a target or would you rather have a gun so that you could fire back and fight back? Exactly. Yeah, I'd rather have a gun. Um, no, thank, thanks. Thanks for the call. And I don't think that makes you, again, irresponsible here. It's just I, I think these are some of the realities that that the folks that the folks who don't believe that private citizens should be able to carry firearms they they're having trouble dealing with the reality of the, these mass shooting situations which is by confronting the shooters you oftentimes can reduce the carnage and you are almost never going to be in a position of of making it worse now again i'm not arguing that people if you don't feel comfortable doing it should carry guns into you know churches and things like that but think about all these mass shooting situations and i think it is fair to say you know what if people in those situations if some of the people in the audience or some of the people in the crowd had firearms and were able to engage the shooter it would be a better situation, better in the sense of less less loss of life than a worse situation. It's 1256. We've got big story number three coming up. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't open up an iPhone. Stick around. 1256, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner. The intro to big story number three is going to make me feel old. Eric Bilstadt, what year? This is not a trick question. What, what year were you born? I was born in 1977. 1977. Gru, who is producing the show today and always, what year were you born? 1989. <laughs> You're going one. Okay, <laughs> Scott Warris produces the morning show who just walked in. Okay, what year were you born? 1981. Huh. Okay. So, if I say July 20th, 1969, to any of you, it's kind of like maybe something in the history book. Obviously, you were not there. Is it local? No, it's no, no, it's not. No, I, I didn't mean this to be a trick question. <laughs> I didn't mean to put you any any of you in a spot. I just meant to say, if you were alive on July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, you know where you were, because that was the day that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Ah, yes. It, it was. I mean, that's there are. If you are of a of a certain age, I mean, anybody who was alive. Pearl Harbor, you know, remembers where they were. Anybody who was alive in November of 1963 remembers where they were when they learned about the Kennedy assassination. Um, Anybody remembers where they were if they were alive in 2001. You remember where you were. And and the the moon landing is another thing. It was just it was just absolutely uh, amazing. So I didn't mean it to be a test, Eric. I was just kind of curious. No, but I, I yeah. But you mean the the moon landing? I mean, I remember. I was, it was in July, so 
we had moved uh, from Baltimore. My parents were from Maryland. We had moved from Baltimore to Milwaukee about two years earlier, and so we were going back on vacation. During the summer, my dad would take two weeks. We'd go, we'd drive back to Baltimore, and I can remember we were in like a hotel room in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, watching the, the moon landing, and it was just it was this amazing sort of thing. That was forty eight years ago, forty eight plus years ago. A man walked on the moon. 48 years later, law enforcement authorities can't open up an iPhone. Now, that's, that's how I, I put this in perspective. Now, here's why this becomes relevant. You, you may remember um, about a year and a half ago, there was a huge debate because what what happened was you had the the shooting the terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California. That was back in 2016. And the the terrorist there was a shooting outside that company in in San Bernardino. The terrorist gets killed. They get authorities get his iPhone. And what they want to do is they want to open up the iPhone because they want to check the guy's recent calls. They want to check his messages. They want to find out who he's been in touch with because they try, They are trying to determine whether or not there are other terrorists that this person has been talking to. And Apple essentially says, pardon my French, but they say, screw you. We're, we're not going to open up th- this phone. And government, we, you know, we don't care what you do. We feel that... If we were to open up this phone um, and t- or tell you how to um, get over the get through the encryption, um, then what would happen is that the secret would get out, and then you'd have hackers and thieves that would be subverting our security. We don't trust you, so you know we're, we're not going to do it. And you might remember that there was a several month fight that um, never really got resolved by the courts because um, the FBI apparently found a private phone firm that could access the, the data. Um, so, But that's always been hanging fire. Um, you know, should Apple be required to cooperate with law enforcement in, in opening up the phone? Well, all right, as of today, it is my understanding that the FBI has still been unable to unlock the phone that was seized from the shooter at the Texas shooting on on Sunday. Now this is a little bit different than the San Bernardino case because I, I don't I don't think this is a case of of terrorism per se, not the international terrorism. And I, I think everybody pretty much realizes that this guy was this lone wolf operative, that this crazy character, you know, a lone wolf operative. And so people aren't necessarily looking for, gee, did he have partners in the attack or something like that. But the fact remains that authorities can't get into the phone and that Apple, well, it's an interesting take what Apple says. Apple still refuses to tell authorities how it is that you can get in, how you can unlock one of these phones. Now, Apple says, well, the FBI didn't call us. They they didn't call us because if they had called us, what we would have told them to do is take the dead guy's body and put his fingerprint on, because a lot of these new iPhones have the fingerprint uh, technology, and we would have said, "Here, we'll, we'll put the fingerprint, put his fingerprint on the phone, and see if it works." Okay, so 
Um, yeah, so let's go down to the morgue and let's put the guy's fingerprint on there. And, and Apple says, well, the FBI didn't contact us because that's what we would have told them to, to do that. Now, I don't know if they did it or not. I don't know if he had fingerprint technology encryption set up, uh, the, the, the touch ID thing set up or not. But the bottom line is Apple is still refusing to share with the government the, the, the steps that you need to do in order to open up an iPhone to allow law enforcement to see the data that is contained on on the iPhone. Um, Apple, again, maintains that, well, if we were to do this, the, the problem is that um, our, our, our security stuff protects people from hackers and thieves, and if, if the government you know, got access to this information, well, then the general public would get access to it, and then we'd have all this identity theft that's there. Law enforcement are saying that this encryption prevents us from opening a suspect's phone, even with a court order. And as a result, it makes it difficult to solve murders. It makes it difficult to solve crimes. It makes it difficult, potentially even, to prevent crimes. Because, again, what about a situation where you've got a terrorist activity and you're, you're trying to determine if there's other members of a ring? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I started this off by talking about July 20th, 1969. I, If we can put a man on the moon, it seems to me almost unbelievable with the resources of the federal government that first of all, we, the federal government, can't crack a code and figure out how to open up an iPhone without a password. That, that's, that's number one. Number two, it strikes me as irresponsible that Apple, faced with a situation where you have a, a terrorist or a mass shooting or just the common everyday murderer or you know criminal, the fact that Apple will refuse to cooperate and provide that information to law enforcement. Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I appreciate the need for privacy, and believe me, I, I don't want to make it any easier for hackers or identity thieves or whatever to get into my iPhone. But at the same time, if the government has seized an iPhone from a criminal or a suspected criminal, the, the idea that all Apple is going to do is say, well, take the dead guy's hand and put it on the screen to see if the Touch ID feature is enabled, that to me is just unacceptable. We, we being the general public through law enforcement, should be able to access this type of information. Now, maybe you need a court order to get it. Maybe you need a showing where you know no other information is available, kind of like you have a wiretap. But I... I think law enforcement should be able to get access to this sort of information, and Apple should be cooperating. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 118. It's 120, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I, I just, it, it is incredibly frustrating to me, and I, admittedly I come at this from a law enforcement perspective, but that you have this, this mass murder. They've got potential evidence, you know, in the form of the guy's iPhone, and he's dead, and we nobody seems to be able to access it. Apple won't do it um, other than to say, well, you should have called us, and, you know, we, we would have told you to put the dead guy's fingerprint on the screen to see maybe if that would open it up. But as far as 
opening it up for law enforcement. They say, no, we, you know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to share that information. Law enforcement ends up being stymied. They're talking about perhaps legislation. This is something, it is just ridiculous to me that in 2017, you know, the FBI or the CIA or NSA or Homeland Security can't get access to a terrorist's iPhone and that Apple and other technology companies don't want to cooperate. Let's talk to Bob in Grafton. Bob, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, Bob. Apple, Apple is the person that can do it. They would set up a, a office somewhere in the United States, or you had three or four of them in the East, Central, whatever. You would send the telephone to there. They would print out everything Apple would, and everybody would be happy. Why should it give the cops the, the key in order to get into that? Because... Not all cops are you can trust. And well, I mean, I wouldn't give it to I, I wouldn't give it to you know every local police department or whatever. But I mean, would you have concerns about, for example, the FBI with a warrant? You know, FBI examiners having the technology yeah. to open it up. So what? FBI. I mean, FBI are not Lily White um, because of what we found out about the Republicans getting. Uh, not getting their uh, write-off for a nonprofit organization. We know the FBI can't be trusted. You hear it on the TV and the radio all the time. So why don't you negotiate a with Apple and say, okay, we need it, and we'll pay for your time. We want and, to- and what if Apple says no? Because many technology companies have said no. Well, again, if you deal with them that way, uh, saying no, okay, don't take no for an answer. Just say, okay, this is our problem. We'll send the telephones to you, and you can crack them. So you can keep your proprietary moneymaker that they won't go bankrupt sooner or later because all they have to do is just have that passed on how to do it, and then everybody will get it. Well, but I guess the, the question becomes, thanks for the call, the question becomes, does that, first of all, should a private company, be able to refuse to cooperate with the government in criminal investigations. I mean, I guess that's issue number one. You know, what you're talking about raises issues with connection of issues with, like, chain of custody and all. If you have the, these third parties that are the ones that are the, the ones that open it up, how do you know that that is reliable or not? I mean, to me, you know, average citizens, you get a court order telling you that you have to produce a certain record or you have to comply, and, and you have to do it. I don't understand why these technology companies are, are any different than that. Rebecca in Milwaukee. Rebecca, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm good, thank you for asking. What do you think? Well, I totally understand that Apple has invested a lot of time and money in their software programs, and they're entitled to their their property, their intellectual property. But it would take nothing for the FBI to deliver the actual phone to Apple, Apple unlock that phone, and then shut off the lock feature. Now the FBI can take its time scrolling through, reading what they need to read, Mm -hmm. without ever having access to the proprietary information Apple has a right to keep. Yeah, I mean, so you bring it to Apple, and you have a special agency that says, okay, here's the deal. We've got a group of people that with, you know, with an appropriate court order, you yeah. deliver the phone, the FBI agent brings it, somebody will go in, they will do whatever voodoo they do, reset the password to 1234 or whatever, and then turn that phone back over to the government so that they could have access to the information. That would seem to me to be a reasonable compromise on, on all of this. 
um, just unlock the phone for the government, and they refuse to even do that. And that's, that, to me, shows that they're disingenuous with their argument. I understand you're entitled to your intellectual property, but now that that intellectual property is no longer at risk, now you're simply refusing to cooperate with the government, and that's a completely different issue. And however you feel about that issue, obviously your excuse at the beginning of protection of your corporate property it's disingenuous, and I don't believe Apple at all. Yeah, no, thank, thank, exactly. I mean, th- that's the that's the whole idea. Now, some Apple will tell you that some of the newer phones might there might not even be the ability to open them up, so that that even Apple claims that they can't do it. I find that to be difficult to believe that you would design a phone that you can't that that even the makers of the phone can't get into that information. I also, I mean, the, the bigger picture too. I do think it's sort of ridiculous that um, I don't know if let let's say you have a spouse that has an iPhone. Your spouse passes away. You don't know what your spouse's um, password is, and that that happens. So that then you know that that iPhone that your spouse has essentially becomes nothing more than a paperweight. That, to me, strikes me as being ridiculous anyhow. I think what Apple does is, is anti-consumer, but I think it's also anti-law enforcement. All right, we got a lot of stuff coming up, including, well, let's see, we're just past Halloween. We're not at Thanksgiving yet. Is it time for Christmas? Stick around. It's all coming up. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 135. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right. Um, it, it's we, we've just gotten done with Halloween. Thanksgiving is coming up. What two weeks from today? Two weeks from today, I think, is Thanksgiving. And and so, the day after Thanksgiving has traditionally kind of been the the start of the Christmas shopping season. Now, maybe it's because I I've been just just so so very busy. I mean, I got married. I think as a lot of people know, got married. Um, about six weeks ago or so, and they should said it wouldn't last, but we're doing just fine, thank you. Um, and, and it's been very, very hectic, you know, with everything I've got going on in my life right now. So I have to admit, I really, I try to figure out, I have enough trouble trying to figure out what am I doing tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, as opposed to thinking ahead of, you know, what am I going to be doing in early December and all. So I admit, I, I have not been focused on Christmas, but a lot of people are. I've always thought that Christmas, though, begins after Thanksgiving, and I recognize that kind of make, make me, a, me a dinosaur. Now, in my industry, they have radio ratings are, are, compound, are, are figured out year-round, and, and they do them in like four-week increments. And then the, the last couple weeks of the year are, are what they call like the holiday ratings book, and it, it's always viewed a little bit differently because typically around Christmas and New Year's, people are off. And you, you've got this other factor that that is, and that is that a number of radio stations flip formats. And maybe they play country music or whatever, and, and they start playing Christmas music. So, again, it's, it, it's, it's an odd period of time when people, again, when, when these radio stations will flip formats and play Christmas music. The idea being people are in in the Christmas spirit. And it's always kind of this parlor game in in markets all across the country. When will the first radio station blow out it, its format and start playing Christmas music? Well, in, in Milwaukee, that apparently happened 
what yesterday. There was one of the, the local radio stations, an FM station, that typically plays hot adult contemporary music. I have no idea what hot adult contemporary music is. I, I don't even know what that is. But anyhow, this, they've apparently now flipped, and as of 7 o'clock last night, they've started playing Christmas music. Um, this, this, again, it, it varies from year to year. Um, the past two years... Um, the first Milwaukee radio stations to go all Christmas um, waited to coincide with the annual Christmas tree lighting in downtown Milwaukee. Um, this year, the tree lighting is November 16th. This particular radio station decided to, to do it. Now, what was yesterday? November 8th. So people are in the Christmas spirit. Obviously, they do it partly to kind of stunt to get the publicity of being the first one, but also presumably because they figure that people, at least some people, are in the mood for Christmas music for the next two months. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. No, we're not going to be switching to Christmas bumper music until probably early, maybe mid-December. That Then we'll probably switch over on this particular program. But I, I just, to me, and again, people, Radio stations have the right to do this. TV stations can do whatever they want. Stores can start posting all their, their Christmas sales and all. But I, I, I view this as sort of this ongoing thing that's been going on for years and years now. It's what I would call the Christmas creep. You know, Christmas creeps keeps creeping earlier and earlier and, and earlier. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. And I love Christmas carols, and I love the secular and the non-secular, you know, Christmas music. I, I love that type of stuff. I just think early November is is too early to be thinking about Christmas, whether it's the Christmas specials or the Christmas music. I, I'm I don't want to start thinking about Christmas until you know early December. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, Christmas in November. Is it time? Are you ready to start seeing all the holiday lights and the decorations and getting your tree up and all that type of stuff? Or is this just a little bit too soon? Or is it a lot too soon? For me, Thanksgiving, traditionally, and I think moving forward, I don't start thinking about Christmas till I get done with Thanksgiving. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some people just can't flat out get enough of Christmas. I understand all that, and obviously there's people who are willing to, you know, fill those various needs. I don't happen to be one of those. Um, Let's see. Kyle in Wauwatosa sends me a text. Jeff, you mean I can't celebrate Christmas 2019 yet? You are a Scrooge. Um, (laughs) um, Yes, could very well be. Let's see here. Another text. No, no, no. I hate seeing Christmas already set up. I avoid shopping until after October. Well, we now are in November. Um, let's see. Rocky says, a bit too soon for me. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Dwayne in New Berlin. Dwayne, you're at 620 WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. How are you, Jeff? Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. Okay, are you ready for Christmas now? It is November 9th. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, personally, my personal belief is that you should have Christmas music start either on Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I think is should be the official start date of hearing Christmas music. I know that, hey, you look at the television right now, you got a lot of ads out there from retailers trying right. to get in. Hey, we got great bargains out there. Come shopping, get the money out. 
stuff like that. But personally, it's either on Thanksgiving or the day after is when it should start. Yeah, right. And I mean, it's, and I would say the same thing to the TV stations that start. You know, I mean, look, I I, I love. The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. I, I love Frosty the Snowman. I love the, you know, all those different specials and the Christmas music. But to me, get through Thanksgiving and then start rolling those things out. I mean, I, I, I want to wa- I want to watch White Christmas, but I want to watch it, I don't know, in, in December, not, you know, in late October or early November. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Yeah, no, thanks to the call. But, I mean, again, and it's... It, it again, it's one of these sort of things where is there a right or a wrong answer? No, not necessarily. But my goodness, we just kind of finished with Halloween. It seems to me they put up these Halloween stand-up stores like in July or August. I mean, it's shouldn't you have to get through? I don't know Labor Day at least before you start thinking about Halloween, and shouldn't you be able to put up have to go through Thanksgiving before you have to deal with Christmas? Alex in Milwaukee. Alex, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Hello. Hi, yes. What do you think? Hey, I'm thinking the day after Thanksgiving is early enough. Anything before that, no, that's too early. Yeah, it's just, well, right. I mean, you're, you're thinking about Thanksgiving. That's the whole idea. Get through Thanksgiving one holiday at a time, you know? What, exactly. what are we supposed to be doing, picking out our Easter baskets now, for goodness sakes? Right. Oh, my God. It's going to get earlier and earlier. Well, well, it is. Oh, oh, thanks for calling. Okay. Now, now here I have a text which makes a a valid point. They say, okay, um, I put up my Christmas lights in October because if you put them up in early December, that's craziness. It's too cold. All right. I understand that. But that's not saying you got to light them. All right. I mean, sure. If you decide, hey, it's the end of October, I, I, I want to put up the lights now, but you shouldn't be turning on your Christmas lights now. I mean, seriously, wait till early December to turn on the lights. If you want to put them up or if you want to leave them year round, that's fine. Uh, let's see our text line. Christmas related stuff belongs in December. It shouldn't start in the beginning of November. Absolutely. Um, you know, ab- absolutely. Um, let's see. <laughs> One of our texts. I'm still eating Halloween candy. <laughs> Well, that's kind of true here. All right. Randy says, uh, not only does my wife like Christmas coming early, she starts celebrating Christmas in July. Our house is already decorated. Our Christmas tree is up. Our Christmas tree is up. Huh. 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 Natalie in Watertown texts, way, way, way too early. My neighbors put up their Christmas tree and my other neighbors put all their outdoor lights on. I still have pumpkins on my porch and a skeleton on my door. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's one of the great things about Halloween. A lot of the decorations that you put out, like the pumpkins and stuff, I mean, they, they can, at least some of them, might be able to double for Thanksgiving type of decorations and all as well. Christmas in October. Christmas in November. No thanks. I'll I'll wait till December to enjoy my Christmas holiday. All right, coming up next, they've done it. They've got the Freedom from Religion Foundation mad at them. Stick around. It's 145. It's 147. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is very cool. We let you experience Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, our featured supper club is the Golden Mast Inn on Okachi Lake. Family-run, the Golden Mast has been one of the area's top restaurants for 40 years, and it offers delicious traditional German and European fare in a truly unique setting. Tomorrow at 1 o'clock, tomorrow at 1 o'clock, you can buy a $50 gift certificate for only $25. It is like stealing. They will go quickly. We only have 50 available. Get yours tomorrow, starting at 1 o'clock, by heading to WTMJSupperClub.com. 
Grew, who's producing the show. I'm telling you, Golden Mass, that's a great place to take uh, to take your young lady. I'm saying she will be impressed, and she won't necessarily know that you got a fifty dollar uh, thing for twenty five bucks. It'll be just our secret. We'll keep that between the two of us. All right, there is this thing called the Establishment Clause to the Constitution. The Establishment Clause of the Constitution says that government should not make any actions favoring one religion over another. All right? The Establishment Clause has been, in my opinion, completely and totally mangled by the courts over the years. Here's the story I want to talk to you about. Um, there is there's a football team in Coweta County, Georgia. That's not important where in Georgia that is. It's a football team. But this is Georgia. This is the South. Um, you know, lots of, you know, religion is a, is a big thing. The, the team has, for years, had a practice of they come out on the field, and before the game, the kids gather on the sidelines and say a student-led prayer. Okay, that's a key. It's somebody on the team, one of the students, leads the rest of the players in prayer. If a player doesn't want to pray, nobody holds a gun to their head and says no. But it's a student-led prayer, all right? the It's not over the loudspeaker. It's just the students, you know, get together beforehand, and, and they do this on the sideline. Now they're on the sideline. It's visible, etc. Now, student-led prayer is okay because... Even under the most weird interpretation of the Establishment Clause, you know, it, it's not government. It's the kids themselves that are doing it. And you, you can't tell kids, hey, you're not allowed to, to pray. You're not allowed to put your head down and say a silent prayer or, or whatever. I mean, you're doing that. As long as it's student-led, there's no problem. All right, so you might say to me, Jeff, where are we going with this? Well, here's the deal. Okay, on the sidelines, the kids all run out. Well, on the sidelines... Who is also with the kids on the sidelines of a football game, with the players? The coaches, right? Now, this is a student-led prayer. So here's what happens. The Freedom From Religion Foundation, which is this group of kind of whacked-out atheists based out of Madison, these are the classic example of the folks that wake up on a daily basis, um, the politically correct and the perpetually offended, looking for something to be bothered about. So somebody sends them a video of what was happening on the sidelines. It is a student-led prayer, but there's a couple of coaches who are standing on the sidelines when the students pray, who, and I hope you're sitting down for this, I don't want you to be shocked, I apologize, and if, if you're driving in your car, you don't have to pull over, but please put both hands on the wheel because I don't want you to be stunned and lose control of the car. But as the students are leading the prayer, there are a couple of the coaches who bow their heads as the kids are praying. They bow their heads as the kids are praying. And in one particular case, one of the coaches actually went as far as to take his hand and like the, the players all kind of link hands and you'll know, put each put their hands on each other's shoulders while this is going on. The sort of like the NFL players do when they're doing their protests. Um, one of the coaches not only bowed his head, but he actually put his hand on the shoulder of one of the players. Well, somebody takes a video of this and sends this video to the Freedom From Religion Foundation, who then has their head explode, their hair catches on fire, and they send a letter to the school district demanding, demanding 
that this practice be stopped. Here you have district employees, coaches, who are in fact endorsing religion by bowing their heads. Um, the idea being as they can't even participate in the student-led prayer. Um, and the Corporation Council says, well, you know, just to be safe, you know, we think we should advise the coaches that they can't join hands, bow their heads, take a knee, or commit any other act which otherwise manifests approval with the student's religious experience. In other words, how dare they, how dare they join the students in the student-led prayer? The memo was distributed to all school principals. As a result, what happened week before last at the football game is none of the coaches came out. That The kids came out, they said their silent prayer, and then the coaches came out afterwards to avoid this problem. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is just flat-out crazy. I understand why you don't want the school officials forcing everybody to stand up and say a prayer. I think it is ridiculous. I think the founding fathers are turning over in their graves. And I think this shows how whacked out the court system has become in this country. If students at a school are standing there and they are saying a prayer and the coaches standing with them are not able to bow their heads and join in the prayer. This cannot be what the Establishment Clause means. It just can't. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. I just think this is an outrage. I, I mean, I, I really do. I, I understand kids shouldn't be forced to pray. But if the kids are saying the prayer, the fact that you have adults around them who are now being told, because you work for the school district, you can't lower your head and join the kids in their prayer, ridiculous. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. It's 154. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 209, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, so very glad to have you with us. All right, one of the uh, interesting things about the way my life has changed in the last year or so, as everybody knows, I'm, I got married a few weeks ago and um, to a v- wonderful woman who uh, just has this enormous number of people in her life, um, all these different friends that she has amassed over the years, and that, that speaks to her character and what an interesting and great person she is. She has all these very, very interesting friends, and I have just, they have embraced me. Uh, I mean, just without exception, or maybe with one exception. But in general, they, 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 have, all, they have all just embraced me, and her, her kids and in-laws. And it's, just, it's, it's just a wonderful sort of thing. And I, I have very much enjoyed expanding my circle of friends. And these, we're talking about people who are captains of industry to people who um, just have interesting backgrounds. And I just, I just find them to be fascinating and nice. One of my new friends I was actually with on Monday night. We were a group of us, and we were at a fundraiser for a food bank watching the Packers game. And I'm going to name check my friend John. And John and I were sitting there watching the Packers game, and we were just talking about stuff. And he a little bit older than me, um, was telling me about how he, he used to be a, a pilot. And this, this isn't, it wasn't his job. He, he, he loved to fly small planes for fun. 
And, you know, as he got a little bit older, he ended up giving it up. He says, yeah, I, I just, I, I still miss it, but it got to be a really expensive hobby and things like that. And I just, I, I, I stopped doing it. He said, I, I missed it, but I loved I loved going up, you know, renting the planes, and I loved going up and flying around. He was telling me about how he used to fly out of the Waukesha County Airport or, or Timmerman Field or, or things like that. And I could just tell it was a real passion for my, my friend John. I, um, I have never been bitten by the flying bug. I, I just, I, I haven't. Um, I understand that I, I'm not a white-knuckle flyer. I mean, it's not like I'm apprehensive about getting onto commercial aircraft or anything like that. I also, over my life, I have on, on multiple occasions, you know, gone up and, and flown with people. For example, uh, 20-plus years ago, ran for statewide office. If, if, you, if you're based in Milwaukee, it's a big state. And if you want to get around, I mean, it, it takes you, what, you know, three or four hours to drive to La Crosse. It takes you 45 minutes to fly. So, I mean, during, I remember during that campaign, um, I, I had access to a plane and uh, a very, very dear man um, volunteered and he would fly me around, you know, and he'd fly the plane around. And, and I, I never, I, we'd be up in these single engine planes and stuff. And I... I never developed this love for it, but clearly Kurt, who was flying me around, had this incredible passion for this. And I, I was, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, we're we're up here, and you know what, what happens? Just out of curiosity, if something happens to you, and they, they tell me how to try to land the plane, and I'm just like, okay, hope nothing happens. I, I had another friend who was in in law enforcement. Actually, it was a she. She was a uh, a prosecutor. And she had, at one point in time, I think had worked um, for the State Department of Justice in Madison, if I'm recalling right, and then got a job. She was like an assistant DA or maybe even a DA something. But but she she had her pilot's license, and she would fly around. And, and there were a couple occasions where we had to go to somewhere, and, you know, we'd, we'd go up and she'd fly. And, you know, you'd, you'd fly and... Uh, you'd, sometimes you'd fly low, and you'd, you'd follow along the roadways and things like that. And I was, again... I could do it because it was practical, but the people that love it just absolutely love it. That was not me. I mean, you you had to do it, had to go up in the private plane, and I wasn't like freaked out about it at all. But but it, it just it wasn't a passion of mine. At the same time, whether it's my friend John or these other people I'm talking about, I understand why this could be something that people really enjoy doing. I mean, some people like to play golf. Some people like to rehab homes. Some people just get a real kick out of flying in planes. Which brings me to something that was said on the radio the other day. You um, may, may have seen this story. Former Major League Baseball pitcher Roy Halladay, um, who was 40 years old. Halladay was, Halladay was one of the, apparently one of the really good ones in Major League Baseball. After he retired. He, he took up flying, and um, a couple days ago, he, he died um, tragically, leaving a, a wife and two kids behind when his small plane crashed into the, the Gulf of Mexico. Now, and that's that's always one of the risks you have in these small planes, and there is there is a danger in you know aviation. So it, it crashed, and, and in general, the reaction from the baseball community where it was it was absolutely stunned. And this is this was one of the good guys. He's forty years old. He leaves behind a wife and a couple kids. Just, just how horrible. Well, all right, which brings us to a guy named Michael Felger, who is a co-host of a radio show in Boston called Felger and Maserati. And yesterday, 
he decides to go on this rant following the death of this man in in the plane. Now, you might say, I don't quite get this. What what would he be going on a rant about? And that is, Felger starts talking about how irresponsible he thought it was to take up flying planes as as a hobby. Now, here's what he says, and I'm quoting now. Wee wee, Felger says, mocking Holiday. Yeah, man, look at the G-force on this. I'm Maverick from Top Gun. Yeah, man, look at this. It's so cool. And you die. Splat. And it's over. So you're that guy. You have to do that. We, oh, look, I just landed on the water, everybody. I'm going to tweet it. Splat, you're dead. Two kids. Moron. It sort of angers me. You care that little about your life or the life of your family? Your little joyride, is that important to you? I'm sorry, dude. You're on your own. I have no sympathy for you. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, first of all, the guy just died. Okay, the, the guy the guy just died. So to go on the radio and to mock him in a fashion like this is just unthinkable, and it's beyond bad taste. Okay, that, that that's number one, I guess. But trying to move beyond that, I guess I was trying to, to under to think about the underlying thing here. All right, the fact that the guy retires and he, he takes up flying a, as a hobby. And I guess when I was sitting, we, we were actually talking about flying. Sunday night, Monday night during the Packers game, because it was a tough Packers second half, I'm talking to my friend John about flying. And he was telling me how much he enjoyed doing that and the things he liked to do. And it never once occurred to me, as I'm talking to this, this friend of mine who, you know, flew as a hobby and that's all it was it wasn't even a commercial pilot it was a hobby it never struck me that it was irresponsible or or dangerous or or horrible it was just something that he enjoyed doing now again it's not something i got into i i don't i i would not have enjoyed it as transportation that's fine but it's not something that ever appealed to me to go out and take flying lessons and learn how to do it i don't it's not fun for me but I don't know. Is it irresponsible? Is is this the type of hobby that if you, you know, have a spouse and have a couple children or have people that love you, is it irresponsible for people to go out and, and take this up as a hobby? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I guess I, I would be particularly interested in talking to some of you, and I, I know you're probably out there, who, you know, do this, who, you know, aren't necessarily commercial pilots, but over the years, you've gotten your pilot's license. You've done this for fun. You know, this is, I know a guy that flies hot air balloons. I, I used to practice law um, in connection with somebody who flew hot air balloons. That was what he enjoyed doing. That was his pleasure. Is this an irresponsible hobby? And, and let's put aside the idiot in Boston who's, again, mocking this man who's dead. But but what is this larger point? I mean, if your husband or your wife comes home one day and says, "Hun, you know, I, I've really, I've decided, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot. And, you know, we've got a little bit of extra money, and I want to go take the lessons, and I want to go fly, and I think it would be really cool. Is that... Is that an irresponsible sort of decision for somebody to make? 414-799-1620. And my answer would be no. I don't know that this is any more irresponsible than anything. Hang gliding, skiing, you know, you you name it. 
all sorts of stuff. I mean, I guess there's always the potential. You go skiing, and I guess you could always go off the side of a mountain. 414-799-1620. It's never occurred to me that this would be, while not my thing, it's never occurred to me that this would be irresponsible any more than somebody who says, hey, I like to go scuba diving or whatever. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 219. 222, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Mark and Fond du Lac. Mark, you're first. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Hi, Mark. Yeah, I was just telling your screener, um, I've been a pilot for 44 years, uh, built three airplanes, I've flown my family all over the United States. Uh, my wife and I truly enjoy it. We don't certainly don't consider it irresponsible or dangerous. I mean, there's inherent risks in anything. Sure. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of like it's like motorcycle. I mean, okay, there's a risk in, in riding a motorcycle, but well, you know, as, as long as you're trained, as long as you're licensed, as long as you don't do stupid stuff, I don't think that it's irresponsible to ride a motorcycle. It's just it's a choice you make. It's fun that you people enjoy doing that. It's a hobby, same as commercial being a being a pilot. That is. And Hall- Halliday made a stupid choice. He was flying irresponsibly. From the video I saw of his airplane, if that was his airplane, it certainly looked like it. Um, he's flying way too low. When you get over open water, you can get uh, disorientated very fast and lose visual reference. And it right. looked to me like that's what happened with him. Was he was he trying to was he practicing landings? I couldn't tell. No, I, it looked, looked to me like he was just buzzing around, doing right. different altitudes, uh, trying out his airplane. That that icon is a very safe airplane. I mean, it's got a lot of safety features built into it. Right but, uh, to be flying over open water, you know, down to uh, ten, twenty feet over the, yeah, over the water is just not not sound uh, judgment. Yeah, I guess I just, yeah, I mean, again, it just like like going to the nature of though being a pilot and things like that. I mean, obviously, we we all might make bad decisions and things like that, but I know getting your pilot's license, I, I a lot of people do it. It's not, if if you enjoy flying, I think there's there's nothing wrong with it at all. I yeah. find it one of the greatest freedoms and the most relaxing thing I can do on the weekend. I go out and fly, and it's just uh, very refreshing. No, no thank you. So, over the state. Yeah, no, thank and, and again, I, I know people who feel exactly the same way you do. Like I say, it's not my thing. I don't ride motorcycles either. You know, I, I that's that's not my thing, but that doesn't mean it, it's irresponsible to end up, you know, doing this um 414-799-1620 rich and racine rich you're on 620 wtmj good afternoon hey jeff i'm uh just you know, i'm a private pilot myself uh it's been a while since i've flown but i mean as far as being irresponsible what do i get like you said get on a motorcycle without a helmet on i mean how irresponsible is that you know or uh right or even you know you get on a plane to take a trip on vacation i mean right. I- anything could happen at any given time and it, it's it's really unfair to say that, you know, it, it's irresponsible for people to do that because it's it's yeah. just uh, you well, know, it, it's skiing. I mean, right? Skiing people die in skiing accidents. Okay, so does that mean we we shouldn't have people skiing? Uh, you know, no. It's it, it's you know it, it's what we do, and there are some inherent risks, and maybe flying has a greater risk than something else does. But still, it it's a hobby. I mean, I'm not going to mock people for making their choice of their of their hobby. If you get pleasure out of it, why not? Absolutely. That that's just in poor taste to. Uh, All right. Well, right. No, thanks to call. No, especially, I I mean, especially since he goes on his radio show on Wednesday and and, and talks about somebody who died on on Tuesday. I mean, 
You know, really? I have no sympathy? Come on. Um, okay, here we have a text. This is from Dustin. I hear similar talk from my fiancé, but with putting a well-prepped car onto a local racetrack like Road America to drive the car hard. Non-competitive track time. She says it's irresponsible. I say at some point you've got to live and enjoy life. Now, again, there are there are things that you can do that are, in fact, I, I think that would be irresponsible and, you know, perhaps unduly risky. But at the same time, I, I think you could also make an argument that, again, flying, because you have to have some degree of training to do that, my guess is you're probably safer in one of those small planes than you are necessarily driving on the roadways because, you know, you're driving on the roadways and the chance are you, chances are you got some 16 or 15-year-old kid driving a stolen car at 90 miles an hour around here who's going to blow through a red light while trying to elude the police and, and hit and kill you. That's, I mean, are you irresponsible because you're out on the roadways? I don't think so. Dan in Oshkosh. Dan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hello. Hello, thanks for taking my call. Thanks Jeff. for calling. Well, along the lines of riding a motorcycle, I do what they call track days, where a bunch of us pretend we're racers, go off, go on the track and go fast. Okay. You know, it's all the, you follow all the same rules, and there's inherent risk. But, uh, you know, I would resent anybody. In fact, I did resent my wife when she wanted me to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to slide sideways into, uh, you know, bubble wrap life, go right ahead. But, uh, you know, life is for grabbing a hold of it and not going to the ground. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, thanks. I mean, my, look, uh, if, I, if I have learned nothing over the last couple of years, it is that life is short. And I'm, I, I, I say this to people all the time. It, it's, I'm not encouraging people to go out and do irresponsible, you know, and dangerous things. Hey, I'm going to climb up on that. I'm going to climb up on the hood of the car. And, hey, Evan, can you see how fast the car can go and see if I can hang on? I'm not talking about stuff like that. But, I mean, if the guy's a trained pilot, I mean, I don't think being a pilot is irresponsible. If you know what you're doing and you want to ride motorcycles and you have fun, as long as you're, again, if you're, if you're driving 100 miles an hour when the speed limit is 35, well, that's a different type of story. But, I just I, I think people I think people should be able to pursue hobbies and interests without without being mocked. Just saying, especially without being mocked 24 hours after you have a tragedy where somebody loses his life. It's 2:28. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. WTMJ lets you experience Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, our featured supper club is the Golden Mass Inn on Okachi Lake. It's family-run. The Golden Mass has been one of the area's top restaurants for over 40 years. It offers delicious traditional German and European fare in a truly unique setting. Tomorrow, tomorrow, 1 o'clock, you can get a $50 certificate for only $25. I'm sure my producer, Gru, is going to be dialing in right as soon as we hit 1 o'clock. These will go quickly. We only have 50 available. Get yours tomorrow starting at 1 o'clock by heading to WTMJSupperClub.com. And no, Gru, you cannot do that. You, you, you cannot do that. You are not allowed to do that. We're saving them for the audience. But be sure to check it out. I love the WTMJ Supper Club feature. All right. As you've been hearing all over the radio station today, it appears that the Foxconn arrangement is, is a done deal. You've got the Weedick board that is getting ready to, you know, sign off on it. I think they already have by a vote of like eight to two, two Democrats opposing this. 
in large measure because it was a Scott Walker initiative. You've got some of the naysayers saying, oh, Walker's running away from this deal. He, he's not touting it. Well, you know, when I talked to the governor earlier this week, I asked him that question, and he said, well, no, it's just we've got a lot of stuff to talk about and a lot of great things, and we'll be telling the Foxconn story. And I predict, and you can mark the tape on this one, I predict that when we look back, Five years, ten years from now, this is going to be a transformative development in Wisconsin history. Um, And again, I guess I could be wrong. I guess Foxconn could bail out on its hiring promises. Foxconn can can not deliver. Um, Stuff can happen. But I think this was, while admittedly somewhat of a risk, I think sometimes you have to take risks to have huge successes. And this has the potential to be a huge success for Wisconsin. There are, however, always going to be issues. And there's an old saying that says that when when the elephants rumble, the grass gets trampled. One of the things that is going to be necessary to make the Foxconn facility work is it's going to be necessary to acquire property. Foxconn needs lots and lots of land. And right now you have various developers who are going out and, and they're buying land from people. And the hope is that just through a negotiation process, they're able to obtain all the land they need by going and making offers and people agreeing that we're going to sell our property and things like that. There there are going to be a handful of people who are going to hold out out of greed. They're going to say, hey, I've got this. I, I don't want to give it up. I'm going to I'm going to fight for this. I want every dime I can possibly get. And it's not so much because they have an attachment to their property. It's rather because, you know, they're, they're seeing money and they're thinking, I, I want to get as much money as I possibly can. For those people, they're going to get swallowed up in, in eminent domain. And my advice has always been the same. There, there's an old saying in the, about the economy. Bulls make money. Bears make money. Pigs get slaughtered. And that means, okay, during a bull market when things are going up, People who are bullish can make money. During a market, even a bear market, um, if you're not greedy, you can figure out a way to perhaps make money. Bulls make money. Bears make money. If you're going to be a pig about it, a lot of times you know, you, you end up you know, losing. Um, so I, I think there, there's one group of people who are just out, out for greed. There are other people who, well, they, they, they're, they're dug in. They've got roots. They've got ties to the land. There was a story um, on, on today's TMJ4 yesterday about this Mount Pleasant family who own a, a farm. Um, the, the farm has been in the family for uh, about a hundred years. The property that they own, that this farm, is on um, the, the corner. If they look at where Foxconn wants to be, um, it, it's on it's on one corner of where the projected property is, and the the issue. Foxconn might want it. They might not want it. If they need to have it, um, then you go through the negotiating process. And if it doesn't work, well, you know, then you you kick in with this this eminent domain idea. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I find the whole concept of eminent domain to be extremely interesting. In that, typically, eminent domain, which means the government has the right to take private property in exchange for paying fair market value. Typically, eminent domain over history has been you, you need you need to widen the roadways. All right. You, you know, the, the roadways, it's a two lane county road. It, it's no longer big enough to fit the needs. So you have to turn it into a four lane road. That means you have to take away some of people's front yards. All right. So 
So you, you pay them. That's always been the place. Let's say you've got a community. You need to build a school. You need to build a police department. You need to build the municipal building or the fire department or whatever. And there's you know an ideal. There's a best location for it. It's on private property. But for the general good, you be able to set. You know you, you can take it. That's what eminent domain has historically been. Supreme Court case a few years back, uh, where I think the court really got it wrong, said that eminent domain isn't that limited. You should be able to take people's property for private uses as well if it enhances the economic value. So in other words, let's say you've got somebody who lives in a, in a slum type of setting, all right? You've got, you've got the slumlord who owns the, the crummy building, and what they want to do is they want to demolish the, the three-block radius to make way for a new arena or some civic improvement that will get rid of the slums and put up you know something that's going to generate stuff for the tax base. Well, eminent domain now applies to that as well. That is broad enough. So here with Foxconn, you know, you've got some people who, like I say, have no attachment to the properties that they own. What they're going to try to do is squeeze every possible dime they can out of it. But here, in the case I was talking about, you've got this family. It's been a family farm. They've owned it for 100 years and presumably would have liked to have stayed and continued to operate that farm. And now there is at least a chance that if if Foxconn needs this, they're not going to have a choice. I mean, they can negotiate the best price or they can be subject to eminent domain. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should the government be able to force people off a farm like this if they decide that they don't want to go simply to make room for a facility which has the potential to be transformative for the state, employ 10,000, 12,000, 13 people, plus tens of thousands or at least thousands more surrounding it? I mean, should Foxconn be able to essentially, through eminent domain, force people to sell their property? 414-799-1620. I'll give you my answer, and it's it's not a satisfactory one, but I'll give you my answer in just a minute. But, you know, should people be able to, again, fight City Hall when it comes to private development like this? It's 243. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 247, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Ron in Waukesha. Ron, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay, eminent domain, should you use it to force a family that's been on, has a family farm for 100 years, should you force them off in exchange for the Foxconn deal? I agree. I would say yes. And and my reason for that is that uh, farming is one of the largest uh, areas uh, that, that receives Tremendous tax abatement from the federal and state government. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, it's like us taxpayers are are owning some of that from a, uh, are owning some of that property, if you will. Hmm. And uh, they're they're some of the largest. Uh, um, I guess. Uh, what if it wasn't a farm? What 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 if instead of instead of it being a farm, what if it had just been, I don't know, that the fam the, the family it passed down from a couple generations. Family has lived on that property for fifty or seventy five or a hundred years. Let's take the farming thing out. Would that be an appropriate case for eminent domain? Uh, I think from that standpoint, it's a rather personal thing, and it would be. I'd be less apt. 
from a, a private industry standpoint and you know, lack of government intrusion yeah. support something like that. But, uh, you know, on the farming side, I would say, that, you know, they sell their land, they get they, they sell it for millions. Um, it's not quite the same in a personal family right. situation. No, no, you're right. No, no thanks. No, that, that, there, is that, there is that difference. You know, it's... This is, you know, one of the problems ever since the Supreme Court kind of opened the door with this. And, and as a conservative and a libertarian, I, I sort of wrestle with this issue because, see, I have no problem using eminent domain to get rid, to deal with blight. All right. You, you've got you've got first of all, I have no problem at all using it to make way for you know, the, the expanded roads or the schools or whatever. And then when it comes to blight, you've got the slumlord. You're talking about a major urban development project, and you've got the slumlord that owns the dilapidated, crappy building in the middle of it who's trying to extort money um, essentially by saying, no, I'm not going to sell. I'm sorry. If it's blight, boom, it's gone. Now, what's going on, though, is now it's a more difficult situation because you're starting to take stuff that's not blighted, but nevertheless Clearly, there is an overriding public interest. Um, here's a text from Justin. I think the Foxconn project, plus likely ancillary development, including facilities for Foxconn suppliers and new housing, hotels, restaurants, and retail, will be truly transformational for all of southeastern Wisconsin, um, etc. This is a legitimate case for the use of eminent domain because... This is me interjecting. In the needs, in the words of Star Trek, the needs of the many must outweigh the needs of the few, as long as they are properly compensated. Yeah, and that's 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 how I come down on this as well. And I understand there is a slippery slope. I think I think eminent domain is way overused, especially for projects that don't have. That, that don't have the value that something like a Foxconn does, and I just. I just I, I think this is one of these situations where it is so good for the general public that there must there must be a couple allowances. Okay, I'm sorry, we take more calls on this, but I'm kind of running out of time. Except there, there's some breaking news. The um, the shoes continue to to drop um, ever since Harvey Weinstein, who is of course the Hollywood producer, who was a major league pig. The guy was a pig for decades. And I think almost everybody in Hollywood, both in the press and otherwise, knew he was a pig. And, and people just covered it up because he was a powerful pig. Ever since he has been, um, you know, ever since he was exposed, no pun intended, for, you know, the type of things he was doing towards women. Now, you know, all sorts of stories are coming out. And you're hearing people like, it's, it's catching up to people like Mark Halprin. Um, Kevin Spacey, the most notable example. Kevin Spacey has a movie, had, had a movie coming out um, at the end of December, opening the week after Star Wars, and they've apparently decided that they're going to just recut the whole movie. They're going to eliminate all of Kevin Spacey's parts, and what they're going to do is replace him with Christopher Plummer, the guy from The Sound of Music, um, but but that's, he, he's just gone. Um, they're, they're just eliminating him. So, I mean, the reaction to Kevin Spacey coming out and acknowledging that, yes, I was, you know, I, I attempted to molest, you know, 14 and 16 year old kids. Um, you know, that's that's caught up with him. The latest two examples, and this is just a breaking story. The New York Times has it. Uh, the comedian Louis C.K. Are you familiar with Louis C.K.? Uh, Louis. Yeah, Louis C.K. Right. Louis C.K. Um Geez, what a surprise here. Apparently, there's now five women who have come out, and they've said that, um, 
going back to 2002, he would, they were all comedians, uh, and they would, like after shows, he would invite them up to his hotel. The bars were closed and stuff, and he'd invite them up to his hotel rooms where he, um, how can I describe this? All right. The bars were closed. They wanted to celebrate. He was a comedian they admired. The women would be together. His intention seemed collegial. As soon as they sat down in his room, still wrapped in their winter jackets and hats, Louis C.K. asked if he could take out his penis, the women said. All right. Who does this? I guess Louis C.K. does this, or Harvey Weinstein does this. Uh, They thought it was a joke and laughed it off. And then he really did it, the woman says in an interview. He proceeded to take all his clothes off, get completely naked, and then I just don't want to go into why he thought this was going to be a turn-on. I have no idea. But So you have another one of these stories where the guy does this. So that, that story is out there. There is a story that's floating around the Washington Post. Um, indicating that the guy who's running as a Republican in Alabama, who was backed by Steve Bannon and stuff, apparently, you know, tried to have relations with a 14-year-old girl when he was 26. This is that Roy um, Roy Moore character who, who's running as the Republican. It, but it's just it's just one story after another of of all the bad behavior that that people have have apparently been going on and getting away with for years and years, and it's starting to come out and. Um, on the one hand, I've always thought that there should be a statute of limitations on bad behavior. On the other hand, um, this this behavior is so reprehensible that it's kind of like, okay, you know, how did you think you could get away with it? And the answer is you thought you could get away with it because you did get away with it. And it, it, it shows the arrogance of these these men, <laughs> these, these guys, that like the Harvey Weinstein. Here, you have this this, this actress. Come up to my hotel room. He answers the door in a bathrobe, and then it's like, here, you want to watch me take a shower? Okay, Harvey, nobody wants to watch you take a shower. Why did you think why did you think that this was going to be chick bait? I mean, for but but it's not about sex. It's about power. That that's this this whole thing that you see story after story after story. It might be a little bit about sex, but mostly it's about power. Here I'm the famous comedian, here I'm the famous movie producer, here I'm the famous movie star and I should be able to do whatever I want. The appalling thing is that this has been going on for years and years and years and years in Hollywood and it's only now coming out. It's 255 We're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind in just a couple minutes. Please stick around.